I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. On this episode of Newt's World, the culture wars, wokeness, identity politics, There are heated discussions right now around these terms, but very little understanding of what these ideas actually mean. In his new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time, Yasha Monk delivers one of the most incisive explorations of a divisive debate that has come to dominate everything from our politics, our academic institutions, our legal system, our media, and corporate America. A new set of ideas about race, gender, and sexual orientation, often referred to as woke, has spread so rapidly in the past decade, we have barely had time to consider its merits in a serious manner. Most people either celebrate these ideas uncritically or dismiss them as obviously undeserving of genuine engagement. Here to discuss his new book, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Yasha Monk. He is a professor of the practice of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University the founder of the digital magazine Persuasion, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, and a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and obviously a very busy man. Yasha, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thank you so much. I look forward to our conversation. Well, you were born and raised in Germany, When and why did you come to the U.S.? So that's right. I grew up in Germany. I went to college in England. And I first came to the United States because I loved New York and thought I wanted to live there. And then I spent a year studying at Columbia University and ended up doing my PhD up in Boston and barely living in New York since. But, you know, I became a United States citizen in 2017 and have come to love the country as a whole. So I'm curious, what was it like growing up Jewish in Germany? It was interesting. At the time when I was born in 1982, there was only about 30,000 Jews in Germany, now a few more. And so for a lot of the people who met me, I was really the kind of representation of their attitude to the country's past. And so some people who met me 
were anti-Semitic or treated me poorly, perhaps sometimes because they wanted to prove to me that they weren't so sorry about the country's past or they weren't going to treat me any better because I'm Jewish in a kind of demonstrative way. But then others did the opposite. They wanted to prove to me that they felt very guilty for the Third Reich and that therefore they loved the Jews. And they ended up being sort of philo-Semitic in a slightly creepy way, you know, telling me that Hebrew is a beautiful language or how much they loved the movies of the Jewish filmmaker that was then most well-known in Germany, which is Woody Allen and things like that. And so it was a very kind of strange set of experiences. And I think in a roundabout way, that's one of the things that I took with me when I came to the States, where I loved that people treated me in a much more straightforward, much more normal way. But then as a set of these new norms and rules about how to treat each other became more prominent, especially in the kind of spaces in which I spend a lot of time in universities and nonprofits and so on, that tend to lean left in various ways, I realized that I was sometimes asked to treat others within the United States in the way that I had not liked being treated in Germany. And I thought that didn't make me feel like a true equal when I was growing up and it wouldn't help people here feel like true equals if I treated them in the same kind of way. So we need to find a better way to actually treat each other with respect without either being hostile to each other or pandering to each other in these weird ways. You turned your experiences growing up in Germany into a book, Stranger in My Own Country, A Jewish Family in Modern Germany. What was it like to write that? Well, it was kind of reflecting on many of those experiences. It was trying to understand both the standing of Jews in Germany today, and then through that, these different phases of how Germans tried to deal with and to grapple with their history. But it also felt a little bit like an exorcism. You know, I grew up grappling with those issues. And as I moved away from Germany and those issues became less central to my life, I think writing this book was kind of a good cathartic experience of moving on to different topics. You say that sometime between 1990 and 2010, that's between the time when you were eight years old and 28, I'm quoting you now. You say, I had stopped rooting for the German team or identifying with Germany or thinking of myself as German. Was that just a gradual process or was there a morning when you woke up and realized, you know, I'm not them? I think it was a gradual process. And now that it's been a few more years, perhaps I actually wouldn't say that same sentence exactly the same way again. I think I was really grappling with whether I was able to fully belong in a country in which just mentioning a certain fact about my identity would put me apart from others in this really complicated way. And so I think that's what led to this process of alienation. That's what made me think that some of these kind of norms, some of that isn't actually particularly useful. Today, I'm a proud United States citizen. I retain my German citizenship as well. And perhaps I would more freely say that growing up in Germany and being born there has shaped me and that, among other things, I'm German. It's not perhaps my primary identity, but that's part of who I am and part of how I grew up. And I think I have a more straightforward relationship to that identity than I did in the past. In the World Cup, who do you root for? <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you what, in the World Cup, I root for Italy. <laughs> okay. Why is that? You know, I love Italy. I spent a lot of time there. I was there in 2006 when they won the World Cup. I like the football they play, even though a lot of people don't. But I can also root for Inter Miami, whose journey I've been following with great admiration for the last months as, as they added Lionel Messi to the team. And I also root for Bayern Munich at the club level in Europe. So, you know, one can have multiple identities and that's just fine. My wife, Callisto, was the ambassador to the Vatican and we got to spend three and a half years in Rome. And the Italians are as passionate about football as they are about virtually everything else in life. 
It was enormous fun to go to a bar and watch them during a match. I mean, it was just oh, the yeah. level of the intensity was unbelievable. The, the only thing I've seen in Italy that beats soccer in the World Cup in, in intensity is the Palio in Siena, the horse race. Of- we went one year, years ago, when Mel Sembler was the ambassador. He took us up there. And we had a room looking right out over the finishing line, which belonged to a native of Siena who now worked as a banker in Florence, but who kept this apartment for the purpose twice a year of coming back for the horse race. And his level of intensity about whether or not his team was going to win was so astonishing. I mean, it was like a parody of an Italian movie. I mean, he was a nervous wreck before they even started. It was one of the great memories of my life. And I recommend anybody listening to us, if you can go to Siena, they have two horse races every summer. They are both extraordinary experiences. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yes. I mean, it's one of the, one of the things I love is that at the end of it, the jockey from the winning contrada, from the winning part of the town, rides into the cathedral, the beautiful cathedral of Siena, on the horse and is blessed by the bishop. I mean, it's a bizarre mix of Catholicism and kind of form of patriotism and some kind of form yeah. of semi-pagan ritual, but evidently sanctioned by the Catholic Church, and it's quite something. Costa, as a good Catholic, was shocked because, you know, they put the mushroom to the horse's mouth. And she's going, what? You can't do that. But of course, in Siena, you can do that. I was fascinated that all four of your grandparents went to prison, which has to also be sort of a fascinating thing to grow up with. Walk us through, how did they end up in prison? My grandparents were born in Stettels in what today is Ukraine, what then was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And they were Jewish and they experienced, you know, a lot of pogroms, a lot of discrimination. And so they put their faith as teenagers in an ideology that promised to overcome those kinds of religious-based or ethnic-based hatreds. And that was communism at the time, right? It said that it would not distinguish between people on the basis of which group you were born into, what group you were a part of. And they became communist activists, and they were in jail in the late 20s and early 30s in Poland for their communist activities. They survived the war by fleeing east to the Soviet Union under often gruesome conditions. And then in the the late 40s and 50s, they helped to build up the communist regime in Poland. But of course, that regime ended up turning on them. In 1968, there was a big state-sponsored anti-Semitic pogrom in Poland, and there was about 50,000 Jews left in 1967. And when those about 500 left by 1970 because of that. And so I grew up without their political convictions, but I always did retain a little bit of a belief that that form of universalism had something to recommend itself, that this aspiration that one day we would be less defined by the group into which we're born was a part of the noble aspiration of a certain kind of old-fashioned left. And one of the things that I chronicle in this new book, and The Identity Trap, is how the left has given up on those universalist ambitions and gone from a movement that wants to de-emphasize which group you're born into, that wants to say you can have things in common beyond the categories of race and religion and sexual orientation to an ideology that encourages people to conceive of themselves as strongly as possible as being defined by the kind of group into which they're born. And that, I think, is a historical mistake.
from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms, including four consecutive balanced budgets. March the Majority tells the -the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order March the Majority right now at gingrich360.com slash book, and it'll be shipped directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. Go to gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at gingrich360.com slash book. Now, you talk some about the whole issue of the identity trap. Does that basically mean tribalism, or what does it mean? Yeah, so what I describe in the book is a new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation that have, first of all, remade how we talk about those issues in universities. Secondly, really transformed how the left thinks about those issues. But thirdly, because the left is very influential on many mainstream institutions in the United States, it has really actually changed the values, the norms, the ideas 
that animate core American institutions. And those ideas are often motivated by genuinely noble intentions. I teach students at university and a lot of the students I have, I think, are genuinely motivated to make the world a better place. They recognize that America remains a deeply unjust place. They have what I believe are very legitimate fears about a resurgent far right in this country as well. And therefore want the most radical set of ideas that is going to overcome those injustices. And so they end up embracing what a lot of people call woke ideas, what I prefer to refer to as the identity synthesis for that reason. So that's the lure, right? It has this promise that it's the most radical thing that's going to set the world to right. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. But it does end up being a trap. It ends up being a trap for a number of political reasons. Once you embrace these kinds of norms, it actually becomes very difficult for your organizations to function. We've seen all of this strife, all of these meltdowns in the last years in mainstream institutions, and particularly in progressive organizations, because they have bought these ideas hook, line, and sinker. It is a political trap because it often leads people to embrace policies that are meant to serve those who have historically been marginalized or dominated, but actually doesn't like a set of pedagogical approaches, like the rejection of phonics, for example, which was meant to somehow be more equitable, meant to bring people in, but has resulted in millions of children from disadvantaged backgrounds not learning to read and therefore not having the tools they need in order to succeed in and thrive in life and in society. And I think it's a personal trap as well. I think this trend that we see in many elite private schools, for example, of encouraging children to see themselves primarily as quote-unquote racial beings. The tendency to split them up between different groups based on their race is meant to create a society where we're hyper-aware of injustice, but really it creates a society where we're hyper-aware of who's part of my ethnic group and who's part of your ethnic group. And that'll make it harder, not easier, to sustain a fair, thriving, diverse democracy like the United States. And so that's why it's a trap, because well-intentioned people can end up being lured into these ideas, but the goals they have, some of which are laudable, end up being subverted by the adherence to these ideas. Well, in a sense, it reverses the motto, you know, out of many, one, and turns it back into the opposite, which is out of one, we now try to become many. And we separate ourselves out in a way that is almost the exact opposite of what I think the founding fathers had in mind. And I think that's especially true for these racial affinity groups that you've now adopted in many universities, in many corporations, and in many schools, right? There are schools like Gordon in Rhode Island, like Bank Street in New York, like Sidwell Friends in D.C., the schools that educate some of the most influential people in this country, that now have teachers coming into classrooms, sometimes in third grade or second grade and first grade. And tell kids, if you're black, you go over there. If you're Latino, you go over there. If you're Asian American, you go over there. And if, you go, if you're white, you go over there. And the idea is, I explain the origin of these ideas in my book. They're rooted in the concept of strategic essentialism invented by a literary scholar called Gayatri Spivak. The idea is that getting people to lean into their identities is going to allow them to resist injustice better. But that's not actually... What happens? What you do is to tell people that they should prioritize the interests over their own group, over those of 
others. And I'm particularly concerned about that in the case of white kids. What are you telling those white kids when you put them in a separate group? Now, some people worry that they're going to be uncomfortable. And they might be uncomfortable. But you know what? I think being uncomfortable in your education sometimes is fine. I'm not so worried about that. What I'm worried about is that everything in history and everything in social science teaches us that the group of which we identify can be relatively malleable, relatively flexible. But once you identify with a particular group, once you say the most important thing about me is that I'm American or I'm Catholic or I'm this or I'm white, then that is the set of interests on which you're going to fight. And so I don't think that those kids that are being separated into white groups are likely to become courageous anti-racists who fight against white privilege. I think it's much more likely that they become racist and white supremacists. Isn't it almost a reversal of the idea that we're individuals, that we're each personally endowed by our creator, and that we come together voluntarily to create a larger, better thing. But we don't do it as groups. We do it as individuals. And isn't there a profound conflict there between the sense that you're a unique you, or are you submerged into being part of a group that could be identified in many different ways? I agree with that. I have a few thoughts on this. I mean, one is that this is why this is a personal trap, not just a political trap. All of us seek a form of recognition from society, right? All of us want to feel seen. All of us, in some sense, I know this has become a little bit of a bad word, want to be unique little snowflakes. I'm a unique little snowflake. You're a unique little snowflake. I mean, it's fine, right? We want to be seen as what makes us different and special than others. But, but what a lot of young people are now taught, what the message they're getting from the schools, from the broader social environment, from the universities is the thing that will give you that recognition is to define yourself by the particular intersection of your identities at which you stand. If you just think about all the groups into which you're born, that's who you are. And that's part of who we are, of course. My life story influences who I am. Your life story and your parents and your background has influenced who you are in your life. And that's perfectly fine. But if you reduce it to that, we have a problem. Because I'm not identical to my brother. I might have many of the same identities as my brother, but we're very different people. To be recognized in society, I need to be seen in different terms. And that's why I agree with you that that is dangerous. Now, the thing that gives me hope is that many different moral and political traditions have recognized this, right? I am somebody who's motivated by the values of philosophical liberalism, not in the sense of liberal and conservative, but in the sense of the great tradition of people like John Stuart Mill, who have thought about the role that freedom should play in society and who have theorized the kind of protections we need from the collective will in order to be able to be truly engaged in shaping our own lives and thinking freely about the world and so on. Other people may be more motivated by their religious values. Other people may have political convictions, but a huge variety of these traditions will lead you to reject this single-minded focus on identity. To a Christian, for example, what is most important about us, what is fundamental about us is that we're all created, all humans are created in the image of our maker. And that, therefore, the distinctions we may see in our societies based on ethnicity and national origin and so on are less important than the fact that we have a soul, right? So I think that gives me a little bit of hope that there's going to be Americans with many different sets of convictions, many different sets of religious persuasions that can push back against these misguided ideas. You mentioned earlier that your grandparents were attracted to Marxism in part because it offered this hope for a society in which there wouldn't be 
these kind of divisions. And I'm kind of curious, both the earliest stages of the French Revolution and the sort of Trotskyite wing of the Soviet Revolution really seem to idealistically favor a genuinely classless society in which people really were integrated together. And then both of them degenerate into dictatorship and violence and persecution. Do you think that it's just that humans can't sustain that kind of utopian vision? Because there are really interesting parallels between the two revolutions and how they evolve. There's great research on utopian communities that build, not at the level of a state, but just at a smaller level, right? These folks in the 70s who decided to you know, move to Vermont or move to somewhere remote and have these communes and live in this utopian way. And they nearly always devolve over the same time frame and in the same stages. At the beginning, for half a year or for a year, when you have these people who are really motivated, who are really altruistic, you can make it work. And many of the people who participated in those attempts say this is one of the most beautiful moments of their lives. And then the assumption that everybody can be selfless for so long, that you can live without private property, that nobody is going to try and exercise power, whether formal power or just informal domination over others, end up being broken. And often these communities that start out so hopeful become cults or become people where, you know, some people are bullied in terrible ways, where any form of dissent, any form of disagreement becomes punished in extreme ways. And you see this happening again and again and again in these different kinds of contexts. So I think there is something about just the frailties of human nature that make that difficult. But at the broader level, we know what societies sustain relatively peaceful and tolerant and prosperous societies. And that is ones that have the protections of what political scientists call liberal democracies, or what sometimes in America people who are more conservative would call a democratic republic, right? It is societies where we collectively have a form of self-determination. We collectively help to make the laws, but we're also protected from the laws. Even when the majority passes a law that says, this is how you should worship, or this is what you should say, and this is what you should not say, we as individuals can say, no, I have a right to free speech, I have a right to free worship, and even these democratically passed laws do not get to tell me how I should live. I think the core problem of Marxism and Bolshevism and the core problem of the radical elements of the French Revolution is that they denied that insight, that they did not recognize that without those protections, the uh, power of a state would become so crushing that whoever happens to be in charge at any one time would slowly morph into a dictator. I'm doing some writing right now for the American Spectator on the origins of our current debate over the nature of our constitution and our system. And I've gone back, I'm in the middle of writing about the 1960s and both the civil rights movement and the black power movement. And it's very striking when you read Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, hasn't that King spirit of unification and integration almost been repudiated now on the academic campuses? It has. And so at least in parts of the academy and in this novel ideology that I describe in the book, right? So there's this sort of debate today about what should we call woke or critical race theory. And, you know, I think there's people on parts of the right that invoke these terms in very damaging ways, that use these terms to argue against things that are reasonable, like recognizing that there is serious racism in our society 
today, recognizing that I think there's a form of far-right populist politics that is very dangerous to our democratic institutions, recognizing that, of course, we should teach children in our schools about the injustices in American history, such as slavery. But as a result, you know, a lot of the mainstream and parts of the left have come to think that these terms only mean embracing these commonsensical things. All that it is to believe in critical race theory is to want to examine critically the role of race in our society, which is something we should, of course, do. Right? But when you go back to the actual founders of these traditions, you see that they were much more radical than that. That in some ways they would turn in their graves to think that they're being reduced to those things that most Americans agree with. So somebody like Derek Bell is really interesting here. He's the founder of critical race theory, the person widely acknowledged to be the most influential figure in shaping this tradition. He did heroic work in the 1960s, working for the NAACP and fighting for desegregating schools and businesses and other institutions throughout the American South. Then he started to think of that as a mistake and started to actually explicitly agree with some segregationist senators who claimed that civil rights lawyers weren't really interested in what the clients wanted. They just wanted to impose this ideology of integration on people and that to really serve their black clients, perhaps we civil rights lawyers should have actually been open to schools that were quote-unquote separate but truly equal, right? And so he said that we need to reject the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. So that was a frontal attack on the civil rights movement. When I'm criticizing these ideas, what I'm defending is one of the proudest traditions in American politics that in my mind extends from people like Frederick Douglass to Abraham Lincoln to Martin Luther King Jr. Frederick Douglass, when he was invited to hold a speech commemorating the 4th of July, said to his listeners, you all are hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You're talking about all men being born equal and what a lovely value that is when there's slavery in the United States. But he didn't then go on to say, therefore, we should rip up the Declaration of Independence. He said, so if you're serious about these values, you need to fight for abolitionism. You need to live up to these values. Martin Luther King said that the promissory note that had been issued to African-Americans had so often turned out to be fraudulent in American history, which is surely right. But he didn't say rip up the promissory note. He said the Bank of Justice must honor the promissory note. And so I think that the way to move beyond the identity trap is to be very conscious and aware of the injustices in our society, but to demand that we remedy them and live up to those universal values, rather than to say that forever how we treat each other should depend on the kind of groups into which we're born. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You talk about the rise of social media and how in some ways it accelerates the development of group identity in a way that would probably not have occurred without this kind of access to social media. Yeah, what I do in the first part of the book is to chronicle where these ideas actually come from. And what I do there is to present the thought of thinkers like Michel Foucault and Edward Said and Gayatri Spivak, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, whom I have profound disagreements, but who I think are interesting and sophisticated thinkers who help to explain the main theme of these forms of politics today. What I then go on in the second part of the book is to say, all right, so how do these ideas go from being dominant in parts of the academy, but really very marginal to society as a whole, to having so much influence, so much purchase in mainstream institutions? And so social media is a key part of that story. The first thing that happens is not Facebook or Twitter, but a mostly forgotten platform called Tumblr, which attracts a lot of teenagers, a lot of people in the early 20s who can experiment on the platform of different identities. They can tag themselves in part by identity labels and then find other people who share that same identity. And that hugely expands the ways in which you can self-identify. You know, when you were in high school in the analog world, you could choose between the few identities that people in your high school had. So there's four or five different kind of choices. Now suddenly, because you needed to have a certain number of people who construct that identity with you, right? Now you can find 20 people somewhere in the world, somewhere in the country that share with your identity and create a new way of thinking about yourself. And that's what started to happen on Tumblr. And then you needed to have an ideology that holds together these different tribes. If everybody is there saying, hey, what really defines me is that a new term that bubbled up on Tumblr, I'm a demisexual. But you need uh, some way of people who belong to this identity group to deal with people who belong to the other identity groups. And this is where you get the set of ideas about deferring to each other, that I must never offend you even inadvertently, that if you make a claim on behalf of your group, then I must defer to it without examining it critically and get all of this kind of norms that make up the popularized version of these ideas emerging. These ideas then start to spread into the written form on new internet websites like Ford Catalog. There's a website called everydayfeminism.com that starts to turn what used to be quite academic ideas into Articles that can go viral on the internet, things like four thoughts for your yoga teacher who thinks appropriation is fun, 
or six ways to respond to sexist microaggressions in everyday conversations, or so you're a breast man, here are three reasons that could be sexist, right? So you can see how it's sort of being packaged into this BuzzFeed-like form on the internet. And then what you get is social media taking over as a distribution mechanism. So when something like Vox, the kind of originally technocratic, liberal, center-left publication gets founded in 2013, most of its readers consume articles by going to the landing page of a website, vox.com, right, and looking at what's on offer. And so in that kind of technological world, any one article needs to appeal to a lot of potential readers. What happens starting in 2015, 2016 is that most article views, most clicks come through Facebook and Twitter. And in that world, it's fine if you go to a website and most things are boring to you, as long as each article travels through social connections on social media networks that are based on identity, they can get a lot of clicks. And so suddenly, these first-person stories that really lean into experiences of injustice that really talk about those kinds of subnational identities start to attract way more readers, start to spread way more. And this is a time when mainstream media is in financial crisis. They have to reinvent their financial models. They really want clicks. So they hire a bunch of the writers who are successfully doing this. And within 10 years, you get really quite a striking transformation of mainstream media leaning into the popularized version of these ideas. You make the point about how dramatic the change is with the media. And the one that struck me, you take a look at the New York Times, that the use of the word racist increased by 700% in the eight years between 2011 and 2019. And the use of the word racist in the Washington Post increased by 1,000%. I mean, that's an extraordinary cultural change in less than a decade. Yeah, it's a really interesting change. And I think part of what's interesting is that this actually starts before Donald Trump is elected. So then once Trump is elected, it sort of turbocharges those developments. And in part, for understandable reasons that people did feel threatened in various ways. But you actually see the start of this transformation at the beginning of the 2010s, which I think is just a really striking thing. And so as a result, when you look back now at the Pew tracking poll about how Americans feel about the state of race relations, we are at the worst place we've been to in something like four decades since they began to answer, to ask a question. Now, I think there are many serious problems today and there are serious injustices today, and I would never want to make light of them. But to think that things have gotten so much worse today compared to 40 years ago, I think is just a mistake about how the country has changed. The same is true on issues like gay rights. A lot of organizations in that space claim that America today is homophobic, as homophobic as it ever was. But, you know, in the 1990s, Ellen DeGeneres had to leave her sitcom when she publicly acknowledged having a girlfriend. That would be unimaginable today. So I think it's very important to recognize that we can acknowledge injustices today, persistent problems today, without denying that progress. And that's really where these two traditions fundamentally disagree. For people like Derek Bell, we've never made progress. America, when he passed away about two decades ago, according to him, was as racist as it had been in 1850 or 1950. That racism might show itself differently, but it is as persistent as it was in the past. For many of these gay rights organizations, America is as homophobic today as it's been at any point in the past. 
that then justifies the call to action to just reject the constitution, to reject the Bill of Rights, to reject the civil rights movement. Because if we haven't been able to make any progress, then why should we trust that stuff, right? I think recognizing that we have made progress and that we've made that progress in good part because we've been able to live up more and more fully to these ideals that have in American history often been violated is a much, much more promising way to understand our political moment. And that then explains why we shouldn't be complacent. We should always fight to live up to the noble ideals that are founded America. We should recognize that we have never fully done so. That is why we can tend to talk about an ever more perfect union, right? The lie that we've been unable to make progress and that therefore we should rip these institutions up is simply a mistake. I noticed one of the things you pick up on. I used to represent Coca-Cola when I was a congressman from Georgia. And Coca-Cola now has a confronting racism course. And one of the slides says that employees should, quote, try to be less white. Now, I'm really curious. Obviously, I'm white, so maybe I'm hopeless. But what does it mean to try to be less white? Well, it's a ridiculous statement. Within the ideology, it does mean something. I mean, one of the really striking things that has been making the rounds is a sort of workshop called The Hallmarks of White Supremacy Culture. Now, you might think that the hallmarks of white supremacy culture is devaluing black people or not wanting to recognize the tremendous contributions they've made to our country or something like that. That I could recognize as the hallmark of white supremacy culture. What this paper actually characterizes as a form of white supremacy is values like punctuality or values like a worship of a written word. And that, to me, is straightforwardly racist. It's not reverse racist. It's just racist. It is implying falsely that people who are Latino or Asian or African-American are somehow less interested in or capable of being punctual or that they are less interested in or capable of loving books than white people. It is a complete travesty of an idea. But I think that is what, in these extreme diversity trainings, when people say, you know, be less white, they are talking about the values that they falsely associate with white culture. And it helps explain why there was a report this week that in Baltimore, 40% of the high schools have zero students who can do math, not one in five high schools, because after yeah. all, math is white. And why would you have to learn something as factual as math? Yeah, so there's various sort of worrying pedagogical trends. The one that I'm most concerned about, which thankfully there's now a little bit of organized pushback on, was the abandonment of phonics. So at one point, the idea was that a lot of books are not interesting to people from more minority backgrounds because perhaps they don't reflect their experiences. They come from less advantaged backgrounds, and so they have less sort of exposure to reading, all of which are real problems. But the solution to this is not to teach reading, not to teach how each letter makes a sound and in combination they create words. And so that's how you learn how to spell and that's how you learn how to decipher written text. But rather you would sort of look at words in interesting picture books and just learn over time to sort of intuit how those words work. That has been an absolute disaster. There's very clear studies which show how damaging 
this pedagogical trend has been. Ironically, if you come from a very privileged background where perhaps your parents can teach you to read a little bit or you've been surrounded by books for a long time or perhaps you're just a particularly smart kid, you can learn to read in that way too. You'll be fine. But precisely the kids that are disadvantaged, precisely the kids that actually need a teacher to help them read are the ones that have been failed by this. And when you're looking at why, how it can be that there are these schools where a huge percentage of children cannot read at grade level, sometimes graduate high school without being able to read with ease. And then obviously have follow-on problems because once you can't read, it's also hard to do math. The adoption of these kinds of pedagogical trends are part of the reason. And that's one of the ways in which these fashionable ideas, even when they claim to want to make the world a better place, can be a trap even for the people who fall into it. Let me ask you one last thing, which you've written a book expressing a real concern. It's called The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Why do you think around the world the concept of the rule of law and the concept of a democratic society has decayed so suddenly and so dramatically? Yeah, well, I think the reasons for that long-term are structural. One thing that always strikes me is that from 1945 to 1960, the living standard of an average American doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. And over the last 30 or so years, nearly 40 years, it's been relatively flat. Economists debate whether it's gone up a little bit or not. But the median American does not feel that they're doing a lot better than their parents were. And they fear that their kids are going to do worse. And so that has really undermined trust in institutions for understandable reasons. I think the rise of social media has been important. It has allowed demagogues to lie and to spread hatred in a damaging way. I think the demographic transformations of many Western democracies are part of the reason, in part because there are people who feel threatened by their loss of relative social standing that has come gone hand to hand with demographic transformations and the rights of women and so on. I think a fourth reason is an educational elite that is quite remote. I'm really struck by the fact that in the United States now, the best predictor of how long you're going to live is whether you have a BA degree, right? There's so many basic socioeconomic outcomes that correlate with education. And in the people who run the most important institutions in society, they have gone off, whatever background they may be from, at 17 or 18, to a nice college campus, the kind of college campus where I teach, right? I'm talking about my own part of the United States, where they're just around other people who are going to be part of that elite, and they go and move to the same neighborhoods after they graduate college. And by the time they have power and influence in the country, they're just very, very remote from the experiences and the neighborhoods and the views of ordinary Americans. And that gap, I think, can easily be exploited. But the danger you talk about is one that I still worry about. We've seen these, what political scientists call authoritarian populists, and the word populist can mean so many different things in so many different contexts, but these politicians who do not accept the rule of law, who claim that they and they alone truly represent the people, that people who disagree with them are somehow traitors or somehow unpatriotic, gain power, gain an influence in many different countries around the world. This is not purely a phenomenon of one part of a political spectrum. You have left-wingers like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela who have destroyed their democracies. You have right-wingers like Narendra Modi in India and Viktor Orban in Hungary who have really undermined the democratic institutions 
in their countries. And my concern, I don't know whether you agree with me on that or not, or to what extent you might agree or disagree with me, is that there is also now a part of a Republican Party in the form of Donald Trump and his followers who are dangerous to our democratic institutions for the same reasons. Not because of the policies that they favor, not because of the people who they might dislike or the fact that the rhetoric might sometimes be a little bit crass. That is all perfectly fine in a democracy. But because they do not accept that in a democracy people will disagree and that people who criticize them, who disagree with them, who stand up to some of the things they want to do, are also loyal Americans who, in a system with checks and balances, deserve to be a part of a system. You know, we could do an entire additional podcast on that. I could make a pretty good argument that the primary institutional violators of the norm are much more the Justice Department and the current system of oppression that, in a sense, you describe here. I mean, instructing people that they learn to be less white strikes me as pretty totalitarian. But that's a different conversation and a different podcast. But Yash, I, I want to thank you for joining me. I think it's been a great conversation. I think your new book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Times, is a really important book. I encourage all of our listeners to get a copy. And I th hope you'll continue to look at this whole question of how are we evolving and how can we ensure that freedom and the rule of law survive that process and that our ability to have a genuine dialogue like this continues to be the norm and doesn't become rare. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you to my guest, Yasha Monk. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Neutral is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Neutral, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Neutral can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. 
Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.